On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Peter Gabriel 3, Melt. Hi, and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends, Paul Zotter and Ken Gregory, as we continue on reaching near, I say, mythic heights of Peter Gabriel with Peter Gabriel 3, Melt. I thought you were going to say seminal. Uh, yeah, I mean, it. I, I I appreciate the fact that there is some discussion as to where the seminalness of the Peter Gabriel catalog occurs. Mm. So I was uh, I was trying to be gracious. I mean, one could argue the seminal the seminalness. What did you say? Seminalness. That seminalness starts. With the opening drum beat. Seminalness. Is that a song in an early Genesis album? (laughs) (laughs) Salmaceous? Is there any other album that we've come across where there are more notes about the technical recording aspect of one fucking bit of a... I would say going for the one, right? With the whole church and the phone lines, like... That's true. That's true. We did have that, but... Four years later, here we are. I mean, gated snares. yeah, so mm-hmm. there you go. Gated snares. This is it. And and it's so funny reading, you know, the wiki page on this. And and it shows up virtually everywhere you you go about this, um, the, 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 the gated snare and, you know, how everyone wants to get their fingerprint on it. So if, if you look at the wikis, I believe the way they state it is Gabriel, Lily White, Collins and Padgham all claim that as their thing. Mm-hmm. And and it goes on to talk about what was it the the guy from Public Image Limited who was influenced enough by it that you know and it's just like okay get I I understand that it was a a, a big deal but I w- want to say when we were doing the Genesis catalog and and the the gated um, snare came up that th- we came across a story that it was it was almost accidental with with how it it came about. Like someone had left on an, an intercom into the uh, into the live room or something like that, and and so it's you know it's yes. one of those it's one of those serendipitous things. It wasn't like it wasn't like everyone sat down and said, "Hmm, we need to make the snare sound better." It, it just you know so so this whole idea of people claiming it, I think, is you know. So it's interesting that we're jumping right into this. So I want to say, I thought it was, I thought we had shared a really intense article about this. And I think the dude um, from YouTube, Rick Beato has spent a little time and put some articles out about, about this kind of stuff. But the, 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 the legend is right. They had the, the mic, the room mic open you know, so that, you know, the talk a mic back. that they use, basically the talkback mic. Right. And there there was some strange effect and and he decided to, you know, hey, maybe we could put maybe we could put a gate on that 
And then they started, and it was an accident. It was like basically an accident that they had the gate on the mic and the reverb. However, what, what I, there is a documentary out there on the band XTC. Yes, that's with, with Lily White producing. Boom. And they were yes. chasing sounds. They were going for bigger and bigger drums thanks to Partridge. What's his name, Andrew? I believe so, yeah. A Andy Partridge. But the place where it really kind of shows up is um, in their album Drums and Wires, which was 1979, and it was produced by none other than Steve Lillywhite with young engineer Hugh Padgham. And... I I want I don't know if this was the first album Ken you may know what when Colin Moulding was was taking over the writing there was a period of time where like Andy Partridge just kind of took a back seat to some of the writing Colin Moulding had the song Making Plans for Nigel and if you listen to that tune it it it's not a gated snare but that is about the biggest snare like it's it's 1979 you would think it was 1984 in the the way that the snare is in that track <laughs> and um and that really was ken the you're right you're right the sort of the beginning of that and then they used kind of that big bombastic sound when they put that gate on there right right you, you get intruder yeah and there's so, and, and that's interesting right so they were they were hunting for for snare sounds and so there was an awareness and so when Hugh, I guess, had that happy accident, he's like, oh, wait a second. This might yeah. be what we've been searching for this whole time. Interesting. I'm so jealous. You, Paul, you implied I knew something about XTC. Sounds I'm, like you did. I, I'm jealous of all those <laughs> post-Beatles jangle bands like XTC. And Stephen Wilson was a heavy consumer of, of all of this. If you listen yeah. to his podcast. I mean, we being Americans missed an entire genre of music and we're only seeing a few famous acts. I mean, that documentary on XTC, I'll try to see if I can find it on YouTube and link it. It's fantastic. Stephen Wilson is, pre is predominant in that as well. It's just an amazing story of a group of creative people. And um, our friend Dave Gregory from uh, Big Big Train, that was his first album with XTC as well, Drums and Wires. and a year later, he appears here on um, Peter Gabriel 3 on a couple of tracks, not the least of which is Family Snapshot. I love hearing Steve Hogarth talk about Dave Gregory uh, in the Corona Diaries. It was just like Dave Gregory was so traumatized by touring with Andy Partridge that he didn't want to get on the road. And Hogarth hmm. had to nag him. Dave, <sighs> do you want to go out on the road? <sighs> but that will be some other flavor for some other day. There's too many podcasts that that I need to listen to. There's a lot of stuff out there. I, ge I generally don't listen to too many podcasts anymore. Don't bite the hand that feeds, buddy. I know, right? All right, let's do this. <laughs> All right, so we do have, um, we have a, a, you know, in addition to our normal stuff, we do have a, a reading to look forward to. Oh, the revised and updated edition of <laughs> 1001 albums you must hear before you die. So we can we can get to that after the particulars. Before we get there, obviously, we have to do the context. So we what do we have two 
two full years in between <laughs> Peter Gabriel two and three. So that's kind of nice, right? Oh, you want my historical context? Yeah. I do want the historical context. Um, I was seven years old, and then I went out to California with my parents and my little sister. And we were allowed to go to Disneyland. Oh, you mean Peter Gabriel's context. Okay, sorry. <laughs> but that really happened in Whatever 1977. Whatever order, it's all good, man. That really happened in 1977. That explains a lot. So, that Peter Gabriel 2 scratchy thing happened in June of 78. An entire year and a half goes by before this next album comes out. So, who was active in this genre during that time period? Well, we have uh, Tormato, we have Jethro Tull, Gentle Giant, Rush with Hemispheres, ELP, Love Beach is a hysterical album cover and a hysterical concept for another day. Queen, Jazz. Um, 79 has a lot of Zappa activity. Super Tramp's Breakfast in America was my go-to roller skating, but this is not my personal historical context as I admitted earlier. Anthony Phillips is still making records. Kansas does Monolith. Saga does Images at Twilight. ELO Discovery. Robert Fripp Exposure, on which Peter Gabriel participates. That scared the hell out of the record labels. They didn't like what Fripp was doing. All crazy there. Uh, Tony Banks, A Curious Feeling, is the one album that friend of the Palaver, Dave Kirsner, uh, has referred to as being the proggiest of the Tony solo stuff. Um, Pink Floyd did a little-known concept of sorts. You may have heard it, The Wall. And <laughs> <laughs> then you cross over into 1980, a brand-new decade. And early in that decade, we have Peter Gabriel's third album, which we refer to as Melt. We did, this was the year that, that we did the Desert Island episode, right? 1980? Yep. I should have listened to that before tonight. Yo, hold the presses. I forgot a very critical <laughs> thing here. In January of 1980, Rush did Permanent Waves. So we're, oh. al we all, we're already getting into that spirit of the radio kind of electric vibe of the 80s. Mike Rutherford has a solo album, Small Creeps Day. Genesis... I don't know if you ever heard of this one before. It's a very romantic album called Duke. Mm. And then we have Peter Gabriel 3. Sorry, in May. Yeah, so as you mentioned, Ken, Peter Gabriel 3 was released in May of 1980. It um, was produced by Steve Lillywhite, as we've already mentioned, and released on the label's Charisma in the UK. And, and it's funny, so there, the original US LP pressing was released on Mercury, but subsequent um, versions have been released on Geffen. So there's a whole bunch of stuff going on there. A long list of personnel, as Paul has sort of alluded to. So we have Peter Gabriel, Larry Fast, David Rhodes shows up, Robert Fripp is still around, Dave Gregory, mm -hmm. Paul Weller, uh, John Giblin on bass on several of these, Tony Levin, Actually, Tony Levin only shows up on I Don't Remember. It really is amazing. Like, there's so much great bass on this album. And 
I mean, I don't remember maybe the best song on bass, but still, there's so much good bass, and it's like not Tony Levin. It's crazy. Yeah, but you know, thinking about the the baseline on I don't remember is, you know, that's pretty stellar. I mean, if you have to have Tony doing one thing, yeah, that's that's Tony showing off. Jerry Marotta and Phil Collins split time on drums. Morris Pert does percussion. Dick Morrissey does saxophone on Start, Family Snapshot, and Lead a Normal Life. Kate Bush shows up. Um, How about Steve, that? I, yeah. I never, I never knew that. That's crazy. Really? I never knew that. Yeah. Yeah. She's uh, she's backing vocals on No Self Control and Games Without Frontiers. Yeah. And my understanding is Kate is the one doing the French part. Ah. Steve Lillywhite and Hugh Padgham are credited as doing whistles on Games Without Frontiers. And Dave Ferguson does screeches on Biko. Hmm. The track listing includes Intruder, No Self-Control, Start, I Don't Remember, Family Snapshot, End Through the Wire, Games Without Frontiers, Not One of Us, Lead a Normal Life, and Biko. That's Hmm. the most keyboards he's contributed. That's amazing. Peter Gabriel is the third eponymous solo studio album by English rock musician Peter Gabriel, released on 30 May 1980 by Charisma Records. The album has been acclaimed as Gabriel's artistic breakthrough as a solo artist and for establishing him as one of rock's most ambitious and innovative musicians. Gabriel also explored more overtly political material with two of his most famous signals, the anti-war song Games Without Frontiers, which became a number four hit and remains his joint highest charting single in the UK, and the anti-apartheid protest song Biko, which remembered the murdered activist Steve Biko. The album was remastered along with most of Gabriel's catalog in 2002. In the U.S., the album was titled Peter Gabriel Roman Numeral 3. The album is often referred to as Melt, owing to its cover photograph by Hypnosis. Music streaming services currently refer to it as Peter Gabriel 3 Melt. I guess we should do the reading first before we get into some of the particulars. So here we are from the revised and updated edition of 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die, Peter Gabriel 3, a.k.a. Melt. With the psychedelic musings of Genesis and self-conscious eccentricity of albums one and two behind him, the 29-year-old prog rocker emerges as an avant-garde solo artist in the mold of Bowie and Eno. Based in his own studio and aided by friends, including Phil Collins, Robert Fripp, and David Rhodes, Gabriel finally felt free to play with his perennial enthusiasms, world music and technology, notably the Fairlight CMI and drumming machine. Alongside the more traditional guitar thrashing on End Through the Wire, Gabriel includes a mix of eerie and ambient sounds never heard, never heard before on a rock album. The quote, gated snares on Intruder, or the sampling of South African chants on the rousing beatbox anthem Biko. Consistently edgy and impassioned, Melt is a perfectly produced collage of warped sonic landscapes befitting Gabriel's sparse insular lyrics of alienation, paranoia, and identity. Indeed, so astonishing was Melt that in the United States, Atlantic dumped Gabriel after executives failed to persuade him to, quote, Make it sound like the Doobie Brothers, end quote. Oh, God. A decision they came Mm. to regret after Mercury took it on and sold 250,000 copies, far more than Gabriel's 
two previous releases. In Britain, the album hit number one, and the single Games Without Frontiers, featuring Kate Bush on backing vocals, reached number four, Gabriel's highest UK singles, placing up to that point. Here ends the reading. Interesting. That was quite yeah. biblical. I, I, I'm so glad I bought that book because it's just, it's so much fun <laughs> to read those ridiculous, you know, hyperbolic, right? Um, just little snippets. It's very, very funny. It, it really, I really, the only thing that would be better is if you could read them in the voice of Peterman. I still think, you know, that would just be, just be perfect. At the top of the episode, we spent a lot of time on the gated snare. I, I do feel we're, we're contractually obligated to talk about the cover photographs. I have never actually done this myself, um, but I, I imagine at this point we've all heard the story about, you know, what they did. And basically they took a bunch of Polaroid photographs. And while the pictures were developing, as we all remember that from back in the day, they would take, I believe it was pencil erasers and smudge them hmm. while it was developing. And so you you had the the double effect of, you know, not being able to see what exactly you were doing while you were doing it, um, so you were you were you were manipulating the photograph without being able to see how you were manipulating the photograph. And apparently, they took a whole bunch of these together, or at the same time, and they all sat around smudging them. And Peter Gabriel apparently, you know, took part in this, as is related in the the wikis and storms. Uh, recollections of this. So, you know, that's just kind of a cool thing. I remember having, um, at some point, my family had a Polaroid camera, and but I, I don't know that I knew about this at that point, so I've never had a chance to uh, to do it. When I was in graduate school, we used to use Polaroids on the scanning electron microscope that I would use. And I was always very tempted to to do that to one of those, but huh. at that point, Polaroid film was was hard to get a hold of and kind of expensive. And I didn't think my boss would really appreciate it if I was dorking around with our work. <laughs> so I never did, but uh, I really wanted to. You know, leading up to this, uh, I have to insert some lore before we really get to chugging through the tracks. And the lore is courtesy of the Without Frontiers, Life and Music of Peter Gabriel book. And also, um, my Life with Genesis, Richard McPhail, uh, listening to his audiobook. The, the, the two are in alignment. Um, McPhail, and at one point his girlfriend took Peter and Jill to an EST motivational seminar. And these motivational seminars were, were big in the 70s. But me as a yogi, I can tell you that some of these things are alive and well in all sorts of help, self-help circles. Uh, but for whatever reason, they were particularly big back then in the 70s. And uh, McPhail stands by that particularly particular EST training seminar. And he said that as a result of this, Peter became more direct. Joe, I think in our language, he dropped the hobbit shit. <laughs> so whether this was a result of the, the training seminars and the brainwashing or just Peter's natural path to adulthood, it's safe to say that, that he did drop some of what he was doing in favor of a more direct craft. 
And, and and that's an excellent call out because, you know, even just last episode, we were sort of walking around, you know, what what Peter was trying to tell us. And I and I guess I hadn't really thought about it. But in from here on out, there's really not much guesswork. Games yeah. Without Frontiers. OK, it's a little weird, but it's pretty much anti-war. Yep. OK, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's less tinkering. Yeah. So the the other interesting thing that I find about this, and, and this actually occurred to me as we were preparing for the last episode, but that could have been because I was cheating a little bit, and I've you know I, I've been I've been playing basically the first four albums interchangeably as we've been doing this, and and I know that we set this up for very specific reasons with this sort of parallel Peter Gabriel fish you know, track that we're doing. But I have not thought of fish at all while we've been listening to these records. I'm thinking of Steven Wilson. Hmm. Oh, wow. Wow. And, and it really, it, it really comes, it, it really comes into focus on this album and a little bit on security. Um, you know, there's, there's something about, the energy and the the subject matter and you know just the the parallel that i think i'm picking up on and we'll get to it when i mean it, it's it's pretty much throughout this album but but certainly when we we get to family snapshot and i start gushing all over the place um i i literally could do an entire episode just on family snapshot i'm pretty sure i could i'm in um but when when you get to that it's it's this e Peter Gabriel at this point is able to create this emotional connection, right? The, 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 the lyrics tell a story that has, you know, something going on, but the, the music is so intimately connected and, and creates the reaction, you know, in, in my physical being much in the same way that Stephen Wilson does certainly on on Raven Hand Cannot Erase and To the Bone. Mm. And and I think that's where that's where it's coming from. And Fish can sometimes do that, but I think Peter Gabriel does that much more frequently. I I I think that makes so much sense. I mean I mean you think about the names of that we've talked about who have played on Peter Gabriel's albums thus far. I mean they are in the circles that we work in household names right yeah. and and if they're if they're not they're people who are quite pedigreed and i, I like i haven't done the deep dive in all of the the fish musicians on the on the first few albums and and there are some folks that i that you know they have they have um accolades but it's not the same and i don't think fish has anywhere near the amount of control over the actual music that's happening on his on his solo albums as you know yeah. Peter Gabriel right like i mean Peter Gabriel could sit at a piano and play all of these albums front to back i don't think i don't think fish was was doing that sort of thing and and, and that's that's a really good um connection too because we know that no one has more control over his work than Stephen Wilson 
Right. <laughs> and and I've heard I he's unproducible, but that's he's, just a rumor. It's not true because I think. Huh. Uh, well, oh, that word comes up with um, Fripp had a quote that all of these artists during this period, uh, Gabriel Eno, and, and that word is in the book, unproducible. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Unproducible. Um, no, I, I want to jump on this bandwagon. Okay. So Stephen Wilson, influenced by Gabriel. Fish, yep. kind of influenced by Gabriel. Then we get to other cats, you know, David Longden, a big, big train, influenced mm-hmm. by Gabriel. Not influenced by Gabriel. Ray Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> I had to. <laughs> and we love Point Ray. well taken, Ken. We love Ray. Uh, <laughs> so... <laughs> Oh, sorry. That was funny. I mean, I think one of Fish's best solo albums was basically all the music was written by Stephen Wilson. I may regret saying that later. but So here's an interesting connection. You're talking about people influenced by him. I, I was looking around for Peter Gabriel interviews, and I, what I've discovered is that Peter Gabriel gives terrible interviews, generally speaking, I, I tried to listen to probably four or five of them and found them to be completely unlistenable and and just lacking in any sort of engagement, which is funny for someone who can make such fantastic music. And apparently he's, he, uh, based on what I've come across in the last several days, has trouble speaking about it. What I did come across and I did, I had, I watched because I had to, um, and obviously we'll get to this at the end, was a a live performance of Biko with Peter Gabriel with Simple Minds. And wow. so apparently there was this sort of love fest going back and forth because one of the interviews I did see, um, Stephen mentioned Simple Minds specifically as, as a band he was, quote, into. So, you know, it that was... A little bit unexpected to me, and, and it was funny watching watching Simple Minds because they were yes, just the 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 poster child almost for you know an, an 80s sort of band playing you know this this anthem, if you will, and it just there was a, a visual incongruity you know, with what I was seeing versus what I was hearing. And it was just like, wow, that's kind of weird. But, you know, so apparently the the influence of Peter Gabriel is further afield than one might even think. That was the 1988 uh, apartheid show. Yes. And uh, uh, at Wembley. That's correct. I'll save my other comments for uh, for when we get to to Biko, certainly, because Biko is is interesting on a number of different levels. I've made comments just generally speaking about this album. I, you know, I've given my, my oldest brother Len credit for owning this album and therefore <laughs> having, you've given him credit. I love that. Well, I mean, it, it's given, <laughs> given what I know about my brother's taste in music. I'm not a hundred percent certain why he owned this particular record. I mean, of all the Peter Gabriel albums available at the time, it makes the most sense. Um, and it may explain why I was never, I never had access to uh, security, 
but it still was a little bit a field i i would have thought um for for what he normally listened to although he is he was big into kansas so i guess he had more of a prog vein than mm. than i would have given him maybe credit for sure. but but the fact of the matter is len owned peter gabriel 3 and therefore i had access to peter gabriel 3 and I don't think I really started to get in. And again, I've also said my brother Dave had mixtapes that he recorded off the the uh, the Philly rock radio stations. So I was aware of certainly um, Games Without Frontiers. And um, I don't remember. Those were, you know, th those those were songs I had come across. But I don't think I ever really listened to this album until after I had sort of discovered um, the, the whole Genesis thing. And this was where, you know, again, as you get into this and when you come in, when we did, you start to put together the story. Oh, wait, Peter Gabriel wasn't Genesis. Oh, okay. But, but wait, Phil Collins plays on this record, but it was after how did that, you know, and you start to try to figure out you know what all this means. And it's, it's, it, it for me, it was interesting, and and that sort of connectivity got me more interested in seeing, you know, what else, you know, did these guys do together and everything else, and and it it sort of you know led me down the uh, the, the the path. But mm. I don't know if what exactly it is, but but this album has just always really connected with me. I I, I can maybe convince myself that I remember you know, the first time I listened to it, because again, I knew, I, I knew, I don't remember, I knew um, Games Without Frontiers, but I mean, it opens up with Intruder. And, and I, I want to say that the first time I listened to it, I'm like, looking at the speakers going, what the hell is this? And the second, third, or certainly by the fourth time you hear Intruder, you're like, fucking hey, yeah, right. You know, because it's just, it's, it's creepy and it's weird and it's wonderful, but it's, it's so beautiful. And I, you know, we didn't even talk about the other, the other elephant in the room here. And it was, it was late in my life that it occurred to me that there were no symbols on this record, none, zero. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of amazing to think that you could have these songs and shock the monkey from security that were, you know, mainstays of of rock radio with such a glaring departure from the quote unquote norm. We talked in in the first episode um, on Peter Gabriel one about how remarkable it was that Salisbury Hill was a big hit in clear seven four, which you don't get very often. I mean, you know, prog bands like their odd time signatures, but it's not like it's a big radio hit. Um, so now you've got this and it's amazing that it, it never occurred to me what made these songs so vastly different sonically, but when, you know, it's one of, it's like when you hear about, um, what is it when doves cry where they, Prince just said, you know, what did he just take out the guitars of the bass or whatever? I forget. Mm. Um, but he just said, take it out. And you're yeah. like, oh yeah, right. That's not even there anymore. Yeah. Um, it, it's it. You know, once you once you're sort of open to that, you're like, wow, I feel really stupid. But it it is remarkable that I I bet you know the vast majority of people who don't 
think about this stuff on the level that that we do and the people that we listen to do the the vast majority of of people who just casually like music i bet if you asked them what made this different they wouldn't be able to tell you and the lore says that peter was on to this i think lily white may have tried to talk him out of it phil collins definitely tried to talk him out of it and then collins came around and said all right i'll give it a try yeah, and, and and Peter's quoted as saying that Phil was cool with it, and Marota apparently fought him on it for quite some time before he finally got on board. And I want to say that I, I recall seeing an interview with Phil where he talked about having to sort of, you know, figure out, well... I was going to say what to do with his right hand, but with his left hand, because he's he's left handed, you know, he had to figure out what to do with it. And he would he would just put weird things, you know, where his hi hat should be just so his his left hand had something to do. I read that. And, you know, that's and, and I think this speaks to, you know, the, the narrative that gets built around Phil Collins in this certainly in this time frame, because um, where are we where we're in the, the, the Duke time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they've gone through four man Genesis and now they're into to two man Genesis and, you know, Phil, Phil is, is obviously blossoming into a, you know, a singer, he's on the verge of becoming a songwriter, but he still is very much at the top of his craft as a drummer. And much like we were talking, uh, before we got on air about people like Billy Sherwood, Apparently, Phil was a workaholic and just wanted to do something mm-hmm. all the time and was willing to explore things that were sort of outside of the realm. So it, it doesn't really surprise me in, in retrospect, given what I've learned about Phil Collins in this era, that he would accept the challenge and say, all right, Pete, let's see what happens here. Thank goodness they all did. Yeah, we we harped in the last episode uh, about different punk influences or pop, new wave, the tubes, and now we clearly have the launch of new wave for Pete. Yeah, this is a destination for him. He's clearly coming from a you know he has progressive roots; they're there, but he he you know brings in brings in this this new wave influence and makes that amalgam. Um, remind me who produced Duke? Was it David Henschel? David Henschel did produce Duke. Yes. Do you think that Phil's involvement in this project up against what he was working on with Duke helped inspire? Like, obviously Hugh comes over and starts working with them on Abacab, right? And their production takes a leap. I actually listened to Abacab today, and I, I quite enjoyed it. And I did you? To feel, I started to feel guilty about all the shit I gave it when we did that episode. <laughs> but <laughs> I wonder if if this experience in, influenced that that growth at all. Mm. I don't know. And does does Ken do the do the lore sources speak at all about how Steve Lillywhite came onto this? Because oh, Gabriel if you liked look at, at Lillywhite's CV, 
I don't know that you would anticipate him working with Peter Gabriel, would you? Yeah, I, I, I truly think it's XTC, based on what I was reading. That's the direction they seem to go. From that perspective, the whole punkish, new wave, whatever we're calling it, definitely connects those, the, those, those two together. It, se- it, it, it does seem like an interesting direction. I've, I think it's interesting that for, it's sort of, this is sort of the split where Steve Lillywhite seems to go in a direction that, I mean, the fucking dude's produced so much stuff, but he sort of goes to more of a, I, I, what's the right way, a more accessible popular music from here, where Hugh Padgham sort of steers into these post-punk um, progressive guys uh, f- you know, throughout the rest of his career. Like he, you know, he's joined at the hip with Sting. He does a lot of Genesis, Peter Gabriel. It's it's just an interesting while Lily Wythe is off doing like U2 and um, you know, fucking Dave Matthews, pretty much everyone that was on the radio in the late eighties, early nineties. That wasn't a hairband. You know, it's fascinating. while we're putting this in the context of a uh, Duke. Just three months after this, drama is released, and that's mm. Eddie Offord behind the board for the new formation of Yes. And yeah. that's that's you know that could be some of the most symbols by Ellen White. So <laughs> 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 it didn't have to go in this direction. I mean. It, it, and you know that you know when you think about all these other albums that we're talking about, like this album is much darker than all the those others. I think in its sonic yeah. approach, I love it, but it's just darker. Yeah, fascinating. So, I, and it's fascinating, right? Because here again, we we we've, we've talked about this. So immediately prior to this, you know, just looking at 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 his his CV, Lily White had done XTC's Drums and Wires, and he'd also done Ultravox, Ultravox, and Ha Ha Ha. And he goes from from that into this, and then he turns right around and he starts working on U2's Boy. I mean, it's it's just it's it's a fascinating sort of, sort yeah. of connection. But you know, again. It, I, I'm always fascinated every time Ultravox or Major pops up in this prog story because I would have never in a million years put you know him slash them in this neighborhood, and yet they keep showing up all the time. We don't cover a lot of pop, but I just wanted to give mad props to Ultravox and Major uh, and that overall uh effort it's way beyond the bounds of what we talk about but i'll say <laughs> I, I don't know i don't know that i've ever actually heard an ultravox oh so. all right so y- you really need to hear the song vienna it may be performed better in britain than it did in the u.s but i know i i heard it and and it it, it brings me to, to tears and then uh dancing with tears in my eyes is yep, that's i was gonna say that one ken oh Absolutely. my god the vocal performance is just incredible 
<sighs> I didn't want to let uh, them. I didn't want to let them slip through. They, they they are influential, and you know, having them be influential to Peter is uh, can only be a positive thing. They played Live Aid. Fuck yeah, they did a great job. Yeah, they did. Okay. Yeah, so it's it's fascinating. So, uh, Intruder. Yes. Wow. What a what a ballsy way to start an album. Like it's no wonder the Atlantic guys like shit themselves, right? I mean, imagine imagine showing up at the studio. Well, what do you got, Peter? And you know, you you hear Intruder. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, it's so different. It's such a perfect example because again, it starts off with the uh, the ever famous drum pattern and the advent of the gated snare. Boom! Here it is. Like, you know, first, second right out of the gate, you've got it's it. It's not like you have to listen for it, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, there, there are essentially so, four you know, sounds in The here. most iconic facet of the recording of this album is presented to you immediately <laughs> in, in, a, in a way that, as Paul, you say, you can't miss it. Okay, cool. Got that. Excellent on board and what it, it's a small aspect of this right but and i'm fascinated and, and i'm curious what you guys seem to think because there's this aspect of singing if you will whereby when people sing accents generally disappear you know it doesn't matter where you're from it seems that when you sing everyone sort of collapses to a, a common ground, if you will. And there are in, some country singers that don't well, abide by that rule. And, well, and, and <laughs> I was I was thinking of country singers as I was putting this together in my mind, but I think they prove my point. With precious few exceptions, I think in order to sing with an accent, you have to purposefully do that. That's my impression. And and I think country singers play up on that a little bit. I would agree. Phil famously did it on Robbery, Assault, and Battery. When when Phil was feeling whimsical, Phil would would do this. So the fact that Peter has a certain, I'm going to call it affected accent on this suggests to me that he's going out of his way to emphasize that. Am, am I mm. am I off base here? Agreed. He's uh, not Latinizing his vowels. He's singing more in what you would call a provincial voice, and that voice yeah. seems to be the character of a robber. Yeah. I mean I mean I mean, first of all, I know that you're not a, a big fan of, you know, relativism, but you know Peter Gabriel would think that we would have accents, you know, oh, and, clearly. and that, you know, so maybe and, he's always purposely singing with an accent every other time he sings. And now he's just letting it go. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, even, you know, Americans have accents, you know, English have accents, Welsh have accents, Scottish have accents, Irish have accents, um, Australians have accents. Sure. We all speak English with accents, but even in the, in the U S you know, you talk to someone from Boston, you talk to someone from Dallas, you talk to someone from Georgia, wildly different accents. And yeah. yet when they, even if you keep it within the, the, the U.S. and American English, you take someone from Boston, someone from Georgia, someone from Dallas, 
and have them sing the same thing, and it's going to sound very similar to it to each other. I, I, you're probably right. You're probably right. I mean, I hearken back to Olivia Newton-John, who, how could you not just be head over heels in love with that woman when you heard her sing, and then and then you heard her talk, and you're just like, <laughs> that's it. What with that accent. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how I don't know how or why singers sing without an accent or with an accent, depending on where you're from. But um, it's definitely a purposeful thing here. Yeah, that he's doing. Yeah. And it's and, cool. And, and, and it is cool. And again, he's able to sort of build this story and this suspense in a way that there is no mistaking what you're hearing, what's going on, and and to sort of maybe force a point that I made in the last episode, I think what interests Peter Gabriel as the singer-storyteller here is not so much the actions of the intruder himself, but the impact those actions have on the person who's being intruded upon. You're given the action, the point of view of the intruder, but what really gets the the blood going is, you know, the, you know, your baited breath charging the air, right? Yeah. It, it it's it's I do these creepy things because it freaks you out and that's what gets me, you know, going. Yeah. yeah. I was harping on the sounds and thinking how fascinating it was to create all of them, not simply the gated drum sound, but like also that, that there's creepy. this huge electric piano. Yeah. And then, and then that segues immediately into this vocal swell. Uh, he does a whistling at the end. Uh, it's oh, just, yeah. It, all, yeah. With, that, with that sort of stretchy, creaky noise. Yeah, and, and all of these sounds you could potentially buy in some form today so i i you know I, i'm imagining a millennial or paul someone like the age of your kids listening to this not realizing that all of these had to be crafted you had to work mm. to make this happen there was no library yeah there were no plugins at this point yeah yeah, right. so my, my point being, it goes much further than just the drums. Peter was thinking this way on every level. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I'm sure what everyone is tired of hearing from me by now is that my first introduction to this song was, of course, on Peter Gabriel's Play is Live. Of course. <laughs> and, you know, there's no gated snare on that. And he sings it like an octave higher. Like, he sings it. He sings it, right? And... And so, and all of the parts are there, but they're all sung. They're not, you know, to your point, Ken, they're not constructed in this like sort of studio. He, he's working with a keyboard, guitar, bass, and his voice. And it's fantastic. And it sounds very much like live rock and roll. And, you know, like Peter Gabriel was just like a different sort of thing. So after liking and knowing the song from that, and then coming to to listen to it in the recorded version and hearing how just downright creepy and disturbing it is sonically this it was just mind blowing after like you thought you knew this song and then you listen to it and you're like whoa what the fuck 
I mean, it's uh, it's it's amazing to me. How spectacular is it to have a xylophone solo? <laughs> Come on. I mean, that just deserves a special mention, right? And, and if you go up to someone completely out of context, and you say, hey, let me play this song. It's got this killer xylophone solo. <laughs> and, and they're going to look at you like you got five heads. But it it comes across as completely believable. Mm, Morris Pert. He had played previously for... Oh, Brian Ferry, Brand X. He 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 was Kate Bush. So so he was a hot guy on the scene. They weren't just grabbing him out of nowhere. Well, they grabbed the right guy, obviously. Yeah, and you know, Joe, you mentioned it, or maybe Ken, you mentioned it. But like, thank goodness. What what is that? Is it what is it? The CP eighty or ninety electric piano? What is it? Oh, CP seventy, maybe in this period. Yeah. I mean, thank goodness that makes an appearance and sort of sticks with Peter Gabriel for a, a while here. It's all because, over Duke, so you know, you know, it's a big attraction of 1980. Yeah, I mean it, it but it it definitely frees. Like we talked about some of the piano stuff, how it sort of conjured up other influences and other things in our minds. I think this sort of allows Peter to sort of develop his own his own thing here i'm foaming at the mouth for the next song i just i i have this incredible pavlovian reaction as soon as the marimbas come in oh yeah right this second track is possibly my favorite moment of um just just the line i don't know how to stop it's amazing the quality yeah. of his voice here, the the exact um, resonance that he gets from the delay echo, so creepy. Yeah, the the, the places that no self control goes to, where like from where it starts. Oh, it I, I goes. mean, it really it like yeah. to me, it's you know we talked. I mean, I think we talked about. I know I did uh, in the last two episodes that those were the the rehearsals for the the masterpieces, and this is where it starts. I mean, this is. All of that experimental shit that was going on in the first two albums that, you know, were fine and were great. Like, they come together in a song like this, you know, and they propel, you know, this idea to another level. So this was this was the song that planted the Stephen Wilson seed to me because and and it it really was the line. um they eat anything that moves, which made me immediately think of people who eat darkness. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it was like, oh, wait a second. But, you know, there's there's a little bit more crossover there. Um, I This song, and can I agree with you, this song I think is generally sort of underappreciated, but it's, it's quite brilliant. And and Paul, this, this was the song on Plays Live that, I thought was just a phenomenal reinterpretation. It's ah. equally as wonderful, but it is wildly different. <laughs> Indeed. That's the thing that's crazy about it. But it, it really is like it's it's like two different, totally two different versions of of the song. And yet, you know, what 
kills me is that the part that like blows my mind, like my favorite part of the song is when he's when he when he screams out like a swarm of bees. Uh-huh. Like before it goes into the whole no self-control like mantra. And it is totally different on both albums, but like yeah, it's just, it's just it's just great. And I never I mean obviously I, I would have never picked up on the uh Marimba uh perhaps influence on um the opening of clutching at straws you know back in the day but certainly today i think hmm there you go yeah it's primarily in like an e minor diatonic except he doesn't necessarily stay in the key there's a lot of half step motions from like an e suspended to an F suspended and then from G flat suspended down to a G suspended. Those those half step motions, you know, since we've been doing this podcast, I now call them Robert Berry chords because <laughs> he's kind of a master of some of those deceptive half steps. Um, but th- this was before his time, clearly. But uh, um, let's, let's chalk up that influence to, uh, I don't know, you know, Fripp, King Crimson or whatnot. Um, it, it, it's truly a breath of fresh air, you know, if, if, if you're, if you're, if you're tired of the E minor drone and, 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 and and it also fits the story because he's giving you these freaky lines. There are always hidden silences waiting behind the chair. They come out when the coast is clear, they eat anything that moves. I go shaky in the knees, lights go out. Stars come down like a swarm of bees. So, so as you were saying, Paul, it it it's the words and the chords that that freak me out in that section. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's such a restraint in the live version on plays live of this, and, and it it creates and and or it builds. Yeah, it creates and maintains the tension in a different way, but it it still creeps you out. Oh. I love it. So I, I I was I was itching last episode to talk about start because we were mm. talking about the appropriation of of the saxophone into Peter Gabriel music and you know how it wasn't a hundred percent you know appropriate and this that and the other thing and all I could think of was well he figured it out by the next album mm. because I think. I think start here and this saxophone bit, it's not an, a stolen American rock and roll saxophone thing. It's, it's, it's crafted to fit into this music and this album and to bridge between these two songs so perfectly that when, when the whole topic came up last episode, I'm like, ooh, but they figure it out. So again, here it's another leap forward in Pete being able to take these influences, but craft them to his own purposes. I think I'm not as big a fan of Start. It's filler to me, and maybe it's just my general aversion to Kenny G or anything that sounds remotely close to it. Um, and I don't want to offend anyone by comparing this fine saxophone playing to Kenny G. I like your take on it, though, Joe. A lot. 
I mean, would you would you argue the point that it's a better use of saxophone in the Peter Gabriel milieu than we experienced in it, Peter Gabriel too? It absolutely is. He definitely figured out. I I, I agree with you one hundred percent. I just I just don't think I'd, I I just don't like my Peter Gabriel with saxophone. I guess I'll say I'll just fair say enough. That. Yeah, he's got a hopelessly romantic Americanized concept. I, I I'm much more into the Dave Parry idea. Is that his name? Yeah. The Pink Floyd guy. Dave yeah. Parry. Yes. Yeah, I mean I mean I mean I mean uh Gabriel could have used sax in a slightly more ominous pulsing way like Floyd. Instead he went for this dreamy sex line thing, not sure why, but hey. <laughs> Start. Yep. All right. Let's end as soon as we start. What's next? <laughs> Fair enough. I don't remember. Oh, God. I don't recall. Whew. I have no memory of anything at all. Oh, which I could, so good. You know, it's pretty much my life these days. So good. It is. You know, this, this was one of the... Uh, this was one of the, the rock radio staples that we grew up on. But it's it's a song that, while being popular from back in the day, holds up pretty well, I think. Yeah. It does. If I ever see Tony Levin and like the stick men play in my hometown again, I, I might scream out. I don't remember in the middle of the set, like in between <laughs> songs to see if he'll just like bust into it. Mm -hmm. I mean, he fucking destroys this song. Oh my God. The, the basses and the stick just sounds so incredible. And he's got, I mean, we've talked about his sounding taking over in, in, in some of the other earlier albums, but this one fits so well. Are there the two baselines? Complements everything. Is this is this one performance with with tapping over top of low stuff? Because it sounds like two baselines to me in places. Did you ever get that vibe? Yeah, that's the that's the beauty of the the, the stick. Okay, is okay. that it's a lot of times they're they're playing low notes with the right hand while yeah. they're tapping notes with their. I'm sorry, no notes with their left hand tapping with their right. God, this song was made for it. Yeah. Yeah, it was probably one of those things. Where, yeah. Hey, <laughs> Tony, remember that stick you showed us? Yeah. <laughs> Can you bring that out? But I mean, he just, he really brings it on this. And it, it's amazing, given the, the the spot Tony Levin has sort of carved out in Peter Gabriel's um catalog that this is the only track on this album that he appears on me he must have been busy or something i don't I think know, he was i think he was busy with um uh robert fripp i could be wrong the other thing when i listened to this i was always fascinated getting into peter gabriel how loose he was vocally how you know and this is of course before i knew about anything with genesis but really how how he always had that ability to just like let his voice go and like yodel up and like a crack into falsetto and you know listening to to plays live that's that's all you hear whenever i listen to this recording i i always wonder like how many tracks of vocals are on like when he's singing the chorus it sounds so great it's like it sounds like it's the best singing he's ever done but if you put your headphones on it sounds like there's like six tracks of peter gabriel singing the chorus and I, 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 it, I, it's the the effect is wonderful, and it sounds so good. I, I just always wonder, like, man, 
Yeah, how many times did he sing this? That brings us to the centerpiece, hmm. the pinnacle. This freaking song, man. This is a song, Family Snapshot, that I want to say grabbed me immediately. I was impressed with it from the, the get-go. And it just keeps getting better. I have been listening to this song for 35 years, maybe. And I love it that much more today than I did the first time I ever heard it. It's just, there's so much here. We talked at, at the beginning of, you know, this change in Peter and how he has become much more direct. So again, we have a very clear narrative. We know what's going on here. Um, he's telling a story. He's telling a story in a very graphic way that allows us to see. He's coming at it almost from the point of view of filming a movie in that you get different layers of the story. You get different angles of what's going on. Um, you know, and, and he's able using the words to convey, you know, all of this in, in spectacular fashion. And, and, and you, you get, uh, I should probably pull up the lyrics to be able to go through it, but I'm, I'm and this is where it's, it's frustrating that I'm, I'm not as prepared as I should be. So I'll try to sort of build this from my memory. But what happens is you, you start getting the different layers of this story. He's got a mission. He's got something that he wants to do. He wants to assassinate this guy. And then you sort of get into, you know, the, the care and planning that have gone into this, right? It's like, all right. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And, you know, if I've done it right, they won't see me with a gun and I've, I've hid myself here and, you know, there's the governor. He's not the one I want this other guy. So, you know, it's, it's sort of like the, the practical aspects of it, if you will. And, and then you get, once he starts talking about the person that he wants to shoot and, and for the sake of argument here, we'll, we'll call them the president because we're not shooting a governor. We're shooting someone more than that, which always makes me think of Kennedy, but that's a whole other thing. Um, once he gets to his target, right now, there's this connection. There's this personal connection between these two. I want to be somebody. You were like that too. We were made for each other, me and you. So there's this, there's this, interpersonal connection. Now you're not talking about vantage points and, and radios and, and sight angles and everything else. You're talking about this sort of more existential connection between these two people. And then, you know, ramping it up, and I don't remember if it's before or after this, you know, he, he talks about this concept of big time viewing born in a flash as I burn into your memory cells. So he's going to achieve his fame because he knows that what he's going to do, everyone is going to see. So there's a very purposeful, you know, it, it's not that he wants to kill this person necessarily for the sake of killing this person. He wants to kill this person and make a spectacle. Big time viewing born in a flash. It almost suggests that this hasn't been done before and he's going to create this concept of, of this broadcast spectacle. 
I mean, we're we're so many levels in at this point. My brain is like starting to fry up, right? But we're not done, not even by a long shot. And while all this is going on, right, even up to this point, the way the music mm. builds and sustains this suspense, you're literally on the edge of your seat because Peter is, you know, the musicians are driving you right along in perfect synchronicity with with the lyrics right up until the point and i let the bullet fly and you can you can see it you can you know if you've ever played any sort of these you know shooter games or whatever with your kid there's always that that scene where you know you you get this sort of slow capture of of the bullet traveling from the gun to the target or whatever the case may be and Peter achieves that musically here. He achieves it musically, and you feel, literally feel, that bullet leaving the barrel and traversing this distance to create this connection. And that would be good enough, but he's not even done yet. Because at that moment, when that connection is made and the, the deed is done, the, the shooter then reverts back to this this childhood memory and it's so powerful because you're so caught up in the mechanics and the meaning and and sort of the immediacy of the act you're not really expecting any sort of backstory and and the way that that is delivered right because i mean the the story about the shooter i mean it's it's an it's a reprehensible act. And yet when the way Peter's able to convey the, the pain of, of this person's childhood that ultimately led him here and, you know, warped his perspective enough that this seemed like a logical thing to do. It's again, it's totally believable. And, and Peter will do this again um, much later in the catalog. I want to say it's with um, on on the Up album, and we'll get there when we get there. Um, but it, it's oh my god, just the way that this song is constructed, and all of these different layers and angles, and and the fact that again the music just tracks so perfectly with all of these subtle changes. Uh, wow! Nice, Joe. Well done. I think you've you've touched upon so many things that that hit hit me about this. You mentioned last week that you know Peter has this amazing ability to dig deep within the mind of you know these people who do terrible things, right? He can get into the into their depths and communicate that, and and that to me that's exactly what's happening here in that in that passage at the end. Um, in there he he like you said you tell this whole story of somebody who's perpetrating this, this terrible thing. And at, at the end, you actually ha feel sorry for that, for them, right? You feel sorry. you you pity them. Yeah. It's truly remarkable that I think I mentioned in our 1980 episode that I was just going about folding my laundry as I was listening to every single one of these albums. And, and like this song came on, and I stopped everything and I sat there and just and just became engrossed 
by this because that's what happens. Even when I just think about this song and start to sing it, it you know, I'm, I'm along my merry way of my day, it ends up stopping everything that that I'm doing, and I and I become somewhat immersed in in all of this. And I think your your comments about the music are ridiculously spot on. Um, the thing for me that is great about it is that I like you said the beginning of the song it's almost like commentary as he talks through this right yeah he you know and it's there's this play there's this play between like a a uh, you know a b a, like a b major very simple b major key and then the relative minor g minor and i'm sorry it's b flat and then and g minor and the the thing that i love is he gets into these to these these G minor parts, the, these driving right parts, like four miles down, the cavalcade moves on. Like even just the the rhythm of those of of the syllables is yeah. is fucking amazing, stellar. But he but he says, you know that that's G minor, and then he gets to this beautiful these chords that are just these. It's it's G minor F, and then he gets to B flat. And he's basically, it's almost like he's sussing the, the B flat into an E chord, right? It's basically an E flat chord over a B flat. And it's, it's very hopeful, right? So you're, he, he's explaining the situation. And then all of a sudden you have this beautiful little music that's like, that gives you the sense of hope. And he's saying, if I've worked it out right, they won't see me or the gun. And that, that like, son, like the, the, the dissonance there yeah. is fucking brilliant. And and it continues on in th throughout that that whole piece. It's funny that you're not mentioning the sax at all. You're just ignoring the sax through this whole section. <laughs> the sax so the sax is like it's it's like sprinkling because of course I, I came about this whole song through Peter Gabriel's plays live. So when I heard the recording, I was like, why the fuck is there a sax in there? <laughs> And I've just sort of, I just sort of managed to, but, but, but Ken, you're right. Like that's the part where the, where the saxophone is, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, it, you know, the sax plays and, and he's like, it, it's that hopeful, hopeful sort of thing. And, um, and then, and then like, again, you know, Joe, the part, like he talks about, the whole song builds and then on the words because i'm alive is when the drums come in and and just like launch the song into the next part and um the 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 music it in 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 more and more ways than i think in any song that I, I i can even think of the music captures the feel and the imagery of this like you said like things that you see he's captured musically in this song and it's just phenomenal i'm 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 glad i'm glad you brought up the the line because i'm alive because that was one thing that i forgot to mention if you recall way back to the joys of episode 66 on the lamb lies down on broadway i made the point that rail's name is um is mentioned, I believe, three times in in the title track, um, "The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway," and I made the point at at on that episode that when when Gabriel, you know, utters 
Rail's name in that. Each of those times, the, the vocals get affected, but Gabriel's delivery is also almost manic in the sense, and I interpreted that as Rail struggling to maintain his identity. I exist. I am here. And I get the same feeling with this character here on that I'm alive line. Mm. Like, you know, I am struggling to to maintain my identity and existence. And this is what I have to do in order to 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 do that. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. You you mentioned Joe, the, the president and the governor in the line. So I th- you know, I, re- I read that, you know, Peter Gabriel described this as, so the, the song is inspired by this book mm-hmm. uh, called An Assassin's Diary. Arthur Bremer? Yep. So Arthur Bremer, who uh, shot gubernatorial candidate George Wallace five times in 1972. Actually, he was the governor. He was on a campaign for president. A segregationist, and yeah. Arthur Bremer left him, I think, paralyzed in the waist down. Yeah. I mean, by all accounts, George Wallace you know, was kind of a dick. Nonetheless, so Peter Gabriel mentioned that it was inspired by this, but it also was inspired by, you know, you know events in Dallas, right? Alluding to the president and, and JFK, right? Yes. And those are the visions that, you know, that I think it's very easy to to get um when when you when you listen to this Mm -hmm. um and it is you know it's it's really fascinating that you know he like this the diaries of arthur bremer was you know bouncing around peter's head uh, and 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 he wrote this i think that um one other thing that's interesting to note is that if you're interested in purchasing the assassin's an assassin's diary it's going to cost you some dollars. Oh, really? Um, there are uh, the the mass market paperback, brand new. It goes for nine hundred and nineteen dollars on what? On um, on Amazon. Yeah. Uh, it's it's quite bizarre. I don't really know why. Um, hardcover is sixty four dollars. So there must not be very many out there. Um, I mean, felons cannot profit off of their crimes as far as i understand it i'm wondering who owns the publishing rights and who is keeping all of this money or uh, no i guess now it's only after market but back then i'm curious who would have harper's magazine press that's just fascinating in 1973 well the timing lines up that this book came out in 73 and he's recording this in 1980 yeah i mean there's actually only two new books available on Amazon right now. I'll put the link in the notes in case anyone wants to gobble them up. Um, the mass paperback is $919. The one new hardcover is currently going for $1,245. Um, oh, my. I mean, it's 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 an amazing thing. Um, <laughs> and it, it, it definitely adds to the the epicness of of the of the song um to to know where it comes from as does you know a, you know dick morrissey's saxophone um 
a huge shout out to John <laughs> Giblin on the bass. There's a lot of fretless shit going on, you know, at the beginning and the end. It's it's just yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Giblin's so great. He's got a great resume. I just wanted to say that um, I'm sure Dick Morrissey is a fabulous musician throughout this period. But I laughed when I saw Gino Vanelli. Gino Vanelli <laughs> was something that he played on prior to this. Ah, oh, boy. And uh, just a quick note from the wikis, the Yamaha CP70 is played on this song for the first time by Gabriel. So m maybe we misidentified one of the earlier uh, piano sounds, but he clearly uses the CP70 here yeah. on the album. And, um, and very, very awesome. Everything to the, even to the very last chord progression of you know at the end right where he's he's talking about you know come back mom and dad you're growing apart you know i'm growing up sad i need some attention it's all these minor chords it's like b minor c minor and d and like chromatic and then again he adds in like hope it just it just it barely meanders up to the e flat and then resolves to the A flat major when he says, I shoot into the light. I mean, it's just. Yeah. That, that, that last shoot into the light is hmm. it, it's, it's, it's an amazing way. I think to, to end this song, let me, when we're talking about that section, because even the, the, the memory section has a couple of parts to it. And I'm curious what you guys think is, is going on there because I want to say, and correct me if I have this wrong as well, his parents are growing apart. He's growing up sad. Friends have all gone home. There's my toy gun by the door. So is is he playing assassin as a child already? Is are his have his friends gone home because he wants to, you know, do weird assassin games? Uh, what do you guys have you guys ever thought about you know what that portion of the story is with the with the connection between the friends going home and the toy gun behind the door i mean i just have a an image of, of a child seeking attention from their parents right by jumping out and surprising them with a toy gun and it's taking something so innocent and playful and showing how destructive it is in an adult it, it's very gabriel-esque to me yeah what i would say is a typical game that you play with your friends is guns you know when you're growing up yeah. and you know he has there's a a hole in his life because you know he's lonely he's a lonely kid and he's sad and his, there's a hole because he doesn't have the parental love and attention and that he got that attention and love when he played guns with his friends and and that's where he is now he he's doing this like you said the whole assassination is for fame that's what he's just doing it to get attention and to 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 be famous and and it and it, when he does it it comes back to where he was before yeah yeah i just it, it's interesting cuz again once once the bullet flies, right? He, he he goes back, and you got if I again if I remember this correctly, you, you've got the we'll call him the weird kid, you know, with his friends, and his friends have all left, and and from there 
it, it takes another step back into the 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 parents, you know, yeah. you know, having problems with themselves and presumably ignoring the kids. So it's like you know you you, you keep sort of digging deeper into you know what. Yeah. what are the causes here and, and it's it's just fascinating the way they do that and then like you said he's he sort of resolves that into the i shoot into the light and to think that you know my interpretation right now is that that i shoot into the light brings us full circle back to the shooter at that point because mm-hmm. i'm going to assume that a a lonely child is not going to, to, to utter that um, unless it's, you know, it, it, it could potentially tie the gen- the origin of this plan. You know, the seed was planted as a child and he's come full circle at this point. Um, I just, there, there, there's, and I've made the comment before, I would much rather have, have uh, you know anything a a book a song a movie whatever that leaves me room to interpret after the fact because I can have so much fun with it and I think this is this is one of those times where I think there is some some room for interpretation here it's 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 straightforward but it's not 100% complete which is perfect I dig the pain and the emotion with which he sings these last few lines you know the way he the way he holds out the words come back oh yeah and the way he holds out growing apart like it's just gut-wrenching you know and and as much as he's as much as he's holding out and just almost groaning you're growing apart when he gets to you know i'm you know that i'm growing upset he almost throws those words away like almost like he's not even worthy to to be sharing how he feels. I, I mean, it's just there's so many levels here that just is fucking mind blowing and awesome. It, it is awesome uh, uh, from a technical point of view, and and this was a point I wanted to make. I didn't know when to make it. One of the things that I find so engaging about Peter Gabriel as a vocalist, and one of the things that seemed to have helped him sort of maintain his ability, you know, late into his career. And, and I, here again, I don't know necessarily the words you guys, I'm sure can describe this to me much better, but this album is the first time that I think, correct me if I'm wrong, that we start to get this sort of Peter breathy voice, you know, because, and I made the comment specifically in the last episode that he was, you know, he was singing with his nuts in a vice. Um, and now all of a sudden he's sort of, he's relaxed everything. And, and, and he has this, like I said, this very breathy delivery that I think he's going to use to great effect from now until, you know, whenever am I, am I, am I wrong about this or is that actually going on? No, I, I feel like you're right on. Yeah. I think, I mean, Along with everything, there's a lot of things that have come into focus on this album, and I definitely think his vocal style and and that particular aspect of it is is one of those things. It's it's after it's after midnight, wow. and I, you know i i I think we need to put a pin in this one. I, I think <laughs> I, I think I need to go have a cigarette. Wow! Right? Seriously? And and and, and I 
and, and I, I say that because um, that was that was a lot to sort of get through. And I think I, I suspect while it may not be quite as um, as involved, I think by the time we get certainly uh, there's a lot between now and Biko, but I think there's a lot of of extra baggage with Biko. So does anyone object to to uh, splitting this into two? <laughs> no, I don't object at all. <laughs> I, I, I don't object. I, I wanted to do a two-minute little splurge on the bass player, Giblin. Oh, yeah, please. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. This might be a good time to note the versatility of the bass player during Melt. So in addition to our, our usual friend of Gabriel, Tony Levin, we needed uh, John Giblin on the session who ended up getting the, the bulk of the work. Who is this Giblin? He's, he, you could call him the Where's Waldo of, uh, of uh, I don't know, English music or Prague or whatever you want to call this. Um, but he, in addition to being on Melt, he was on two Brand X albums. Uh, he was on Kate Bush's Babushka. He was on Phil Collins' In the Air Tonight and You Can't Hurry Love. He played uh, live on MTV with Annie Lennox. <laughs> and he played live at the Royal Albert Hall with Paul McCartney. And yet Holy we've shit, never wow. heard of this guy. <laughs> what a resume. What a, and, I, you know, I, I'm not even done. I'm not even done. He played with all sorts of people. He played on Vigil in a Wilderness of Mirrors. He played with Alan Parsons. Just unbelievable. Uh, for him to just kind of show up, play a little bit of bass, and go home with a paycheck. Well, there goes my theory about the musicians on Fish's album. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I can, I could probably almost call out then which songs on Vigil he plays on if he doesn't play on all of them. I'll be curious. It sounds like he's got mad chops, but he's just an understated team player based on our experience with this album and, and, and the other tracks in the catalog. You know, no no one cranks up in the air tonight for that bass line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Phil, this is your album. You're paying for it. You want to be big. I'm just along for the ride, buddy. That is that is amazing. And I can't believe there's a direct connection musically then between Peter Gabriel and Fish. That's fantastic. I love it. And Babushka. And Babushka. And Babushka. Babushka. And... and you know, I, I'm going to task, if we're going to split this into two, which it sounds like we are, which is cool, I'm going to task the research department to see what can be uncovered about the the relationship between Peter and Kate Bush. Because obviously Kate Bush plays a significant role in So as well. And Kate Bush is an interesting character. Um, you know, I... I, I I don't know nearly enough about her, but I've always been fascinated by her because of her appearance here and on. So, so mm. nice challenge. And, and, and I don't know, you know, where the relationship between Peter and, and Kate, you know, how it came about or, you know, what it actually meant. So I'm curious, you know, and, and it's funny that we're going to stop it here because normally we stop on, on a side, but we are not, uh, we're not quite through the side yet. When we come back, 
next episode, we will pick up with the last song on side one, which I believe is, is, is this a Mozo song and through the wire or is it not? I don't know. I haven't done my Mozo homework. We'll have to, uh, we'll have to look into that. All right. Good deal. But we'll, we'll, we'll catch that next time. And, um, you know, maybe if we're lucky, Tom will have the ability to, uh, to check in and be able to provide some of his, uh, his thoughts on Peter Gabriel three as well. So, um, yeah, you know, and, and if we have any additional thoughts on family snapshot, I encourage us to spend even more time next episode talking about it even more. So with that being said, I will thank you gentlemen for your time here this evening and look forward to continuing Peter Gabriel three next episode. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you, and we look forward to your thoughts, comments, feedback, and questions. You can reach us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We are at ProgPala on all of those, or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or presumably wherever you find your podcast. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening.